Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to day 34 of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50 Day Writing Challenge, first draft edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Today, we continue our week talking about scenes, and in particular, we're focusing on time and pacing with authors Charissa Jones and Stacey Mattingly. Stacey and Charissa, say hi. Hi. Good morning. Charissa Jones is the author of many. Charissa of the author of many, many ill-fated novels. I'm just reading off her bio that she gave me. I've read these novels. They are amazing novels. Um, they're all related to her childhood growing up on a farm in rural Nebraska. She's a novel incubator graduate. She also currently serves on the Grub Street Board of Directors. She holds a BA in ethics, politics, and economics from Yale College. And she has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Business Week, Fortune Magazine, the Wahama World Herald, and other publications. Sharissa was once named Miss Congeniality by a sorely misinformed Miss Southwest Nebraska rodeo pageant judge. That is an absolute accomplishment, Charissa. All right, Stacey Mattingly is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller Unlikely Angel, an Atlanta hostage story, now a feature film called Captive. Stacey's work has appeared in Guernica, Literary Hub, Oxford American, Off Assignment, Europe Now, and elsewhere. In 2012, she launched the Sarajevo Writers' Workshop in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and later helped lead the first narrative witness exchange for the University of Iowa's International Writing Program. All of that is just incredible work, Stacy. She's an Atlanta native, and she teaches creative writing at Boston University as an assistant and is an assistant professor at Berkeley College of Music. Her recently completed first novel is set in the present day Balkans. And I've also read that. So I am a lucky uh, reader of both of these writers' works. Okay, pacing and time we're talking about today. That's an enormous topic that we should probably spend the whole week on and maybe in later editions of this uh, podcast and show, we'll, we will do that. But today we're gonna try to put it all in a half hour. Um, Stacy, why don't you get us going? Great, good morning. It's so lovely to be here, um, having gained an hour, especially. Yes, especially. Um, yeah, so I, I think a lot about time. I'm very intrigued with the mystery of time, just in the terms of the way we live as people in the world, and certainly in the way that that um, is refracted through our work. Um, I tend to think of it in, in kind of um, many ways, but in layered ways. So for instance, outer outer structures of time. So the way that we think about um, the architecture of a story, um, is it linear, chronological? Is it episodic? Does it, does it kind of swing through various timelines and back, you know, in, in ways that are connected non in an, in a non-time related way. Um, so these, these structural concerns certainly relate to time. Um, but I also think about sort of the inner fabric of story as it relates to time. So for instance, um, you know, we experience time in the world in our inner lives in very complex ways. Um, memory impinges, associative thought, reflection. There's just a constant sort of richness in our inner worlds that I also um, love to experience in storytelling. So I'm thinking of sort of these outer structures of time and these inner structures of time. I love that. And, and because that sort of that inner um, structure of time in terms of memory, and that that's something to pay attention to in terms of, of nonfiction and fiction, um, is why if you have a constant, consistent pace 
throughout a story or a novel or a memoir, it won't feel right. It won't work mm -hmm. because our minds, our consciousness bends time. And, and certain moments of time are much more important and need more territory on the page versus others. Um, so you really need to be, be conscious of the consciousness, basically, and really inside that person and how they are bending time and their understanding of time. Um, Sharissa, how, how do you approach this first off? Like, how do you, how do you think about time and or pacing? Well, I think time... Um... I mean, it's one of my weaknesses, I think, in an overall context of the book, uh, because I think it, it ties into that question of urgency. Yeah. Um, and so that I've, I've spent a lot of time reworking, rethinking, and I actually embarked on um, a whole analysis of time travel books because nice. they do spend time. And it's not something I'm very logical. I'm very chronological in my thinking, my writing. It's not something that I would normally pick up perhaps, but I got really into it. And then, you know, and of course we have our own Rachel Berenbaum's book, Atomic Anna, which is fabulous. Um, there've been a number of really interesting time travel books that have come out. And it's interesting to figure out what they tell and what they don't tell with time. Um, you know, and how they, how, they, how they organize their scenes because they have complete freedom. Nothing has to be chronological. You can just, you have to have some rules around it, but otherwise you can just pop around. You know, and earlier, I think Ron McLean said that that's how he writes, which I find amazingly. Yeah. Like, how could you do that? I have to go like the character did this, then the character did that, then the character did that. Um, but I also think time is one of those things and pacing is one where we're most, where I kind of use the same analysis as you would as if you were looking through a movie camera and you know, when you think about a pacing, a scene, I often visualize it as if the movie camera is is going in. So, you know, if you're watching a movie and there's about to be a body discovered, it doesn't just rush upon the body usually. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, especially more artsy films. There's like a breeze. There's a wheat, you know, there's a wheat stalk blowing in the wind that you watch for a few minutes. And then, you know, then slowly creeps up on the body. And I sometimes for big scenes, I like to imagine them as a movie and that seems to give me a pacing that feels right for it. So suspense also, or the need of suspense also bends time. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated. Why did you decide to analyze time travel books? What took you there? You know, I mean, I think if I went back and thought, why are all these novels ill-fated? What am I kind of losing in them? And I think that my weakness might be my incredible logical Mm. You know, and, and how much time I was spending on things that I felt was perhaps important. And I don't think it's noticeable in, you know, a first glance at it. I think it's just one of those things, like when you're sitting there going like, why, why didn't that page sort of fly through the third act? What was happening there? And I think it, it was losing some, because I was still in that kind of like, this has to happen. Whereas maybe for the reader, it didn't at all. Um, and so I yeah. think that's why time travel, I always have written in the present tense. My current novel is in the past tense, for example, is another way that I tried to work on it. Cause yeah. then I said, okay, my character is actually reflecting. What does she remember really well versus it happening in the instant? So what important things is she picking out, which is very similar, I think, to time travel yeah. in the sense of like, what is important to the story? What do you need to tell the reader in these instances, what time periods does your character need to visit to make this story all work out? Yeah, so you could you could probably argue that every novel is a time travel novel. Yeah, I mean that's really interesting. Um, 
and 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 this is the this is the the biggest problem that I see in in novels in particular because there's so many pages the reader has to spend so much time reading it and and there's very few art forms that really need to deal with this problem of time and making sure that we know that time is passing and making sure that the reader feels it. So Stacy, in your actual, in your work, how have you approached this or how have you um, juggled this and tried to work this? Um, well, you just mentioned the passage of time and the experience of the passage of time. Um, and, and I wanna go back to something you said earlier in your earlier remarks about about bending time and, and the way that the pacing has to shift in order to, to reflect consciousness. Um, the way we handle the passage of time is one of the ways that we can look at that issue. Um, there's a wonderful, and, and I think all this boils down to, for me, variety, mm. variedness, variety. So um, there's a short story by the writer Hajin called Saboteur, which appears in his collection, The Bridegroom. And there's, it's a very linear story. It's, it's kind of um, darkly comic in some ways. There's a, there's a darkness over it, but um, the protagonist, Mr. Chu is arrested, put into prison. And it's very fast. The scenes are all the scenes as, as I've, as I've heard Hajin say are advancing the drama. Um, and we, we get to a period where the protagonist is alone over a weekend in a cell. Now, so how do you create, in a, especially in a short form, the passage of time a whole weekend, right? With one person alone right. in a room, it's very hard to do. And, and, and I think um, what I notice in that section is both, is the portrait of consciousness and its variety. So the writing itself is, is it moves around, you get slices of scene, bits of analysis, memory, um, associated, or I don't know about associative thought, but self-encouragement, all kinds of forms of self-talk memory, consciousness in a, in a range of, of, of spaces so that you feel that a lot is happening. Um, you don't feel sort of in the fishbowl of one mind you, in the sense that you, you are trapped or that it's somehow static or that, that how are we gonna feel like a weekend has gone by? I mean, I, I think that the variety in the writing there really creates that sense of energy in the consciousness and the passage of time, um, which I think is, is, is a wonderful model. Um, so, so I kind of, I kind of look for ways to, to, to be varied, even in a paragraph, even in um, if I need to create energy that way and, and a sense of the passage of time. Um, another thing related to time and, and its movement has to do, I think with detail. Um, so if you, or not, not you, but if one, um, if one would like to slow something down, um, often there's there's a wonderful way to do this through kind of play-by-play -play detail. Suddenly a, a scene is moving, you need to slow it all down, you need somebody to pay attention right there, to feel the emotional resonance right there, play-by-play -play detail, also just also variety, just focus, slow it down, look at things. Um, that's another way to stretch out time, I think, and to zero a reader's attention or certainly their emotional antenna on something. Um, so those are those are a couple of things I've I've been thinking about. Yeah. And so 
Um, a, a book on time that I love is called The Art of Time in Fiction by Joan Silber. And she, um, that's part of Charles Baxter's series, the, the Art of series, and all of them are very, very good. Um, but she references in particular a moment when, um, it's actually one of her students has written this, that um, the student um, had, had spent some time in prison and she in prison was able to take a shower maybe, I don't know, once a week. Um, and so the shower itself was so important to her and so large to her. So when she was thinking back about writing about this time period, she really went into those details of going into the shower, being able to leave her cell, walking down the hallway, um, being able to enter the shower because it was so rich for her. And that took up, and, and all those just, just pushing so many lush details at us to show us its importance and to show us the, the mark of the mind on that material. Um, and so Joan Silver has a number of really excellent uh, examples like that. She also talks about shortening time as well. Um, so I highly, highly recommend that. Um, and then, I mean, Sharissa, we might've talked about this in some of your novels and you might wanna think about this too. One thing that I tell my incubators a lot is how can you cut your timeline down? Because I have people working like over 20 years or working over 20 months. If you can shorten your timeline, it's just gonna save you so many headaches. Um, and this includes, you know, you're trying to get rid of everything that's extra, characters, uh, settings, uh, time, uh, adjectives, um, because what, what, you, what remains becomes more important. Um, and of course I do historical fiction, which means I've actually covered broad periods of time that I choose to do maybe like a day in 1922. And then if I need to cover the next time I do like two days in 1924, just to shrink it to, so it, re, it retains that tension and it retains that focus. Have you had to deal with that in your book, Sharissa, this choice of time? Yes. I mean, I wrote about a prisoner as well. Um, he wasn't the, the main narrator, but um, so time was obviously a big problem because again, you're, you're like, what are you going to do? It's a lot of interiority of a, yeah. of a prisoner. There's not a lot going on. Uh, you can't watch the you know grass change or the trees change so easily. Um, and, you know, my problem was I needed to compress the timeline there. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, I guess you don't get the death penalty and die within six months usually. But um, I wanted to try to make it like that so that you could cram it all in. Um, and I realized it was so difficult then that now I conceive of time before I even start a project. I'm like, I really step back and say, what is what is the problem? How long is this problem going to resolve? take to resolve and how long would it take in real life? And I, can I cut that in half for a novel? Right. Uh, can I make it just say, this is one year or this is one time and really have a grasp on that. So that again, because my problem has been urgency. So that will really make it much more urgent to say, you know, here's yeah. the ticking and you got to get it. You know, they have, they're going to run out of money in six months. They're going to, you know, something's going to happen that they have to have this done. Yeah, because I, I read so many times and I'll read a passage in, in a student's book and it will say two months later, they decided to. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What what's the two months? <laughs> You've just completely lost me. What have they been doing for two months? Just sitting around eating Twinkies? I mean, I you know, there's you've completely lost the pressure in those sorts of um, gaps. And then 
I mean, Stacey, have you dealt with this too, of having to limit time? Because you're also writing about places that have the weight of history and time on them. And how do you do that? No, I'm, I'm actually, right now I'm rereading um, the Neapolitan Quartet by Elena Ferrante. Oh, nice. Um, because, well, certainly that's a book series of four and it covers a lifetime. Okay, so mm -hmm. four books covering a lifetime. So obviously the span of time is massive across the, the quartet, but her book, um, I'm there too. Is there? There is the weight of history, the pressure of of evolving time and history and and context and 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 politics and social context, all kinds of things. But foregrounded, of course, are human relationships. Um, but I think Ferrante does such a brilliant job of managing massive amounts of time by the way that um, she deploys both. Um, scene and exposition, general and specific time um, creates. So she does maybe skip over large things, but but she does address them in an expository way. And then she'll drill down in some specific moment. As you said, you, you might choose a day in 1922. She'll, she'll choose a, a moment in this particular stretch of time. And, and so there's a kind of, um, I think, a if one can can definitely use that that energy between general and specific time, between exposition and specific scene, I think there's a way to 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 cover a, a larger span of time um, and keep the reader on board and keep the reader emotionally just you know flat out engaged. Um, and and so I'm rereading this quartet to really study that, um, but. You know, so I think I think anything is possible, right? In our work, we just have to find the way in. Um, so, for instance, I, I you you mentioned time skips; they might be disoriented on the uh, disorienting, and on the other hand, they can also generate energy. That's another. I just need to keep referencing Ha Jin, who was who was yeah. my teacher my teacher many years ago. Um, flash forwards and and skips forward can generate energy if something is becoming too plodding. Um, so, so I think there are all these different ways we can manage a larger stretch of time, but I also know that it's, it's unwieldy, as you said. And so we have to really think hard, you know, can we, is less more, um, and, and those are, they're just questions we have to discern based on our individual projects, but yeah, but I look yeah. for models in literature who, who are doing, we are defying things and, and, and study, how did they pull that off? Um, right. How did they do that? Because, of course, there are novels that cover large swaths of time and they do it ingeniously. Um, so getting studying those novels, <clears throat> I think working on your first novel, you might want to make things a little easier on yourself, of course. But I don't do this like I, you know, if I were to make things easier on myself, I'd have one protagonist, short period of time, contemporary. And so I see my students struggling with this stuff. And I, at the same time, am doing five narrators over, you know, 30 years. So it's, you know. <laughs> Um, and then, so Sharissa, so this is, um, Julie Fox in the uh, chat is asking, Sharissa says her problem is urgency. How does she know that? Is she getting that feedback? Is she feeling it? And this is why I actually like to bring on authors on this show that are in the trenches trying to figure this stuff out. Because I feel sometimes we get these like star authors and we, we, we have a number of star authors too, but they always talk about these things if it's matter of fact and it's just so easy to do. And we don't really get into their struggles of figuring it out and struggles to figure it out book by book by book, even if they've published five books. Um, so Sharissa, how do you know your issue is urgency? 
Well, I'm very honored to be not your star. <laughs> <laughs> You're not my star. Okay. It's seven. Ago. No, um, I think, I think one of the best, I, you know, I just went back. I've had a number of uh, books that have gone on submission. Um, I've had editors, you know, write their, you know, taking them to the meeting, right. Which is in my yeah. agent, very excited about it. So it seems like it's going to happen. You know, everyone's like, ah, oh, it's going to happen. And then it doesn't happen. Um, so what I really begin to delve into, like, why wouldn't they push hard enough? Why, why was it not catching just at the right enough to get enough people on board at the publishing house to buy it? Um, and so I just went back through all the comments with the comments that at least my agents have provided over time. Um, and I've, you know, I compile all of those comments in, from emails and things like that into a word document. And then I go through and I remove all the negatives. So yes. I just have this word document of everybody saying how brilliant I am and how amazing it is. And it's a great new voice, which is highly recommend for those bad days to have. Yeah. But then I also have the real one that has, you know, all of, well, you know, I couldn't get through it. And I, and I wouldn't say there's something specific, but or I would have fixed it in the actual work had I known it. But if I just go through, if you look at a broad number and you begin to see like, yeah, you know, it didn't quite catch me in act two, act three, or, you know, there's, it, it, that's what it felt to me like the issue might be. And I think you have to look at that. I mean, it could just be a weird confluence of things people wrote to get rid of me and my agent at the time. And they didn't really mean that much, but I think you can find things if you're wanting to improve and think about it. And so yeah. that's, that's where I got the idea of what it is. I also just, and that feels right to me in my bones. It feels like what is kind of holding those back potentially. And how can I increase that urgency or that tension and, and hold it throughout? Yeah. And just being open to that. Cause I, again, um, these are, these are all writers who have accomplished tremendous things. And, and yet you see other writers of actually lesser skill um, getting published. Um, so the willingness to kind of go back and rethink and, and look at this, but also it's a lot of times it's just luck um, for the most part. I mean, it's, it can be very, very uh, annoying in that way. Um, we have another question, which does have to do with time. How do you know if you have enough material for a novel and not just a short story? And so that does have to do with time and pacing. <clears throat> Stacy, what do you think? That's also also what I love to do to my guests is not only <laughs> make major pronouncements about them that might not necessarily be true, but to give them enormously impossible questions at 7.20 a.m. to answer. So Stacy, go for it. Say something eloquent and, and, and wonderful. So, I, I mean, I, I think my, my own uh, tendency yeah. is to write long. Um, I just tend to write long. I, I, um, I like to sort of... Um, if I, if I find something like if I, if I find some material and I'm there with it and I'm kind of beginning to excavate it, I tend to try to go as both as deep and wide as I can, which um, kind of, I guess, makes me more, more bent toward a longer form. Um, so I'm probably, I, I, I don't know that I have, I don't have a kind of general response to this. I, I think even my short stories um, tend to go pretty long. Um, I, I think that, and, and kind of cover things that are um, a little bit more, um, I don't know, maybe the material of a novel. So it's, it's a little harder for me to answer that. Um, I, I think, think that is kind yeah. of an answer though, because yeah. I think some 
write, each writer has their own pace. And I think as writers, we're expected like, oh, you're a fiction writer. You can use, you can do things of, uh, you can do very, very short stories. You can do stories, you can do long novels. And some writers can't um, because they have their own particular interior pacing. Um, and that's just, and so I wouldn't, for those of you that have been working on novels, it can be really hard because you're not publishing shorter fiction. And so it looks like you're not doing anything. And particularly if you're applying for jobs or creative writing jobs and you can you can line up those short fiction publications on your CV, um, but you can't do that if you've been working on a novel for a long period of time. Um, and I've always, I've been like that too. I work long form um, and it's just kind of what's natural to me. And I, I think that's, that's something to know about yourself and to learn about yourself. And a lot of writers might already know it, but they just have to be comfortable about that. Also, I was just going to say, I, I mean, I, I've actually really tried to now lean into that as opposed to fight yeah. against it. Um, I mean, I know, and I can pick up on it even in my reading tastes. Like I love books that just take me all over. I, I don't have to be, you know, driven by something that's carefully plotted. If I'm interested, I'll follow people around for a long time in a book. Um, for instance, the opening chapter of Doris Lessing's um, Golden Note, the Golden Notebook is a massive scene. I mean, I want to say 50 pages. I mean, it, and, and it's riveting for me, the psychologically riveting. So I'll stay with that. So, okay, that's that must be my bent. And let me just lean into that and sort of see what I can dig out of that. Um, yes. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do right now. Yes. Sersha, how about you? Um, how do you know if you have enough material for a novel and not just a short story? Um, well, I don't really do short stories because, I mean, as anyone who knows me knows that I can like turn an evening with my lost cat into a 500 page novel. So it's right. always the other problem for me. And yeah. I, if, I, if I'm in a short story or trying to, I'm always like, but what about this? And what about that? And I can't, I can't do that concise, like, you know, tying it together. So um, I think the bigger question for me often is, is it a good enough idea to hold for a novel? Um, and sometimes things I think is absolutely fascinating is, of course, just stupid. So I, um, I think you rely definitely on your fellow readers for that kind of thing and having good friends that you can go grab, you know, a bite with and say, hey, is this a dumb idea? Is this a good idea? Before you dedicate that time, because really, you know, and most people, <clears throat> you know, definitely a lot of people would say, well, I wouldn't know until I saw it. But, you know, it's also a nice way to bounce ideas and just talk about what might be the idea. Then you maybe write down a few pages and then share them with friends. I think that's the best thing because who knows what you're going to really be interested in and whether or not it's going to be able to carry for an entire book. Right, right. And then I think about, so I, I do, so it can be about material, but I almost, I almost feel like it's, it's about how much attention the character, the writer can give to that material. Because you can have a book that takes place, you can have an entire novel that takes place over one day. Um, there's a novel called Saturday. I think it's by Ian McEwan. It takes place over one day. Um, and then I'm also thinking about Lauren Groff's short story at the Round Earth's Imagined Corners, which covers a decade or two in a, I don't know, the story itself is maybe 10 pages. Um, so it's also about your own interior pacing, but also how much attention that you want to give to that particular material. So not is not necessarily the material itself. Um, some other things I wanted to quickly mention in terms of helping you with time. 
If you're having trouble with your pacing, um, I do oftentimes recommend going to, um, you know, there's lots of structures that uh, authors are handed all the time. And a lot of these structures are really not helpful, but some of them can be. So lots of time we go back to uh, the hero's journey and then we like try to set it on fire and, and bury it and then set it on fire again because people hate it. Um, or there are other structures that we get from film and television, like Save the Cat. Uh, there's three X structures, there's five X structures. Um, so there's a lot of structures that you can find. And what I would recommend, if you find a structure that you think is really interesting to you, and we're going to be talking, I think it's next week about structures that go beyond the traditional Western structures, because that's important as well. But if you find a structure that's really interesting to you, lay it like a um, uh, measure against what you're doing, just as a kind of test just to kind of allow you to see what you're doing. And this does not mean that you change what you're doing to fit the ruler. Um, it just means that it kind of just allows you to see a little bit what you're doing and then you can decide, oh, I'm missing that. Or, oh, I have a big gap here. Um, you know, it can just, it can just be helpful to you. Um, another, um, another piece of advice, use people and settings to help convince us that time has actually passed. Um, so I recommend as few settings as possible so that you can return to them. And when you return to them, um, everything that happened before in that setting is still in that setting. And you can also uh, date that setting. Uh, things can become older in that room. The room itself can feel like it shrunk if you've had a character age. So that can be really, really useful to you in convincing the reader that time has actually passed. Because you can tell us two years have passed, but unless we really feel it on the page, we're not going to quite go there with you. And we're still going to feel like only a day has passed. And we actually might even forget that two years has passed. Um, and then the same with people, they should be aging, they should be getting fat or thin or their skin should be changing. So remembering that time is affecting um, physical entities in your book and that can help convince us um, about the passage of time. So Sharissa, you're gonna go back to these novels and you're working on getting that urgency. So what's the first thing, yeah. I don't know that I'll revise those novels that are kind of dead and gone. Um, but I think it definitely will. It informs what I'm working on now, the novel. Yeah. We'll just keep with that. Um, you know, I think one other piece of advice when you're doing this that that to think about that I use in my work when I'm revising definitely is if you find yourself reaching for the adverb, if you're finding yourself wanting if your character is shrugging, if they're, you know, if they're doing all those things that you're like, eh, why am I doing this? The problem might be pacing. And it might be worth really looking at the time for that because you're definitely not getting the emotional resonance on the page directly. And that might be a chance to slow down or speed up the pace of it. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about that as it relates to the emotional kind of feeling of the whole scene and how it works. And then Wonderful. take time to, to notice the other things the character might be noticing that could reveal the emotional state. Wonderful, wonderful. And Stacey, any last thoughts that you want to give us in terms of time and pacing? Yes, I do just want to make a case for being very free with moving across time and using like we don't have to go in order. We can right. we can go via association and create wonderful transitions through memory, through imagery, through language across time to hold it together. I want to recommend a short story that's novelistic by Benedict Kiley called Bluebell Meadow. Uh, there was years ago a great New Yorker fiction podcast on this piece. I think 
I can't remember who spoke about it right now, but I, I just want to just make a case for feeling, freeing yourself up and, and, yeah. and seeing how time can work in a nonlinear way to really serve the emotional core of your work. Right. And reading as much as possible, other writers that are doing that same thing can kind of free your mind and ability to do that. Um, and just kind of, and I also, I also recommend transcribing by hand certain passages, certain chapters to get a feeling of how the author is carrying us through um, that certain amount of time. All right, I need to get these folks back to their desks. Uh, tomorrow, we're talking about dialogue with uh, writers Pamela Loring and Michelle Ferrari. Um, and if you support what we're doing, please share, follow, and rate our 7am Novelist podcast on Substack and other podcast platforms. And you can find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Sharissa and Stacey, thank you so much. You were absolutely fabulous today. Thank you for helping us out figure out this impossible subject. And I hope you all have a fabulous Sunday. And I hope you get some great writing done. Thank you so much. But you never wonder why there isn't nothing here. Oh.